0: system. Alexander Hamilton being
2: the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists
0: are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're
2: only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence. That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. As
0: one who doesn't watch that much television, I will confess I'm a latecomer to the Netflix program called Billionaire. I've only seen a couple of episodes, but so far it's entirely a man's world. Oh, sure, there are women involved in the drama... But the billionaires are all men, as are the people dedicated to taking them down. Well, I guess today posits that economics has been almost exclusively male conversation for the past 2,500 years. And she's out to change that. Ricky Gard-Diamond's new book is called Screwnomics. Yes, that's it, Screwnomics, how the economy works against women and real ways to make lasting change. In it, she explains that The underlying assumptions of an economic system that discounts its ties to nature, family, the value of mutual care, as well as, oh, the nation's future. Diamond joins other women, uh, economic silence breakers, who are exposing the damaging impact of a male-controlled world of money. Today, we're all paying a heavy price for maintaining this now clearly unsustainable economic system. Oftentimes, people look at big problems like the many dysfunction of our capitalist system and throw up their hands and exclaim, oh, the whole thing is beyond repair and must be tossed aside. Of course, that's not going to happen. As H.L. Mencken observed, for every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. So while blind profits over everything, uh, capitalism is deeply flawed and is currently causing great harm to the planet, it's up to us to dig in to come up with complex solutions to its inherent complex problems. Our guest, Ricky Gard-Diamond, contends that there is an overpopulation of male billionaires waging the economy as war, while we need to wage life. And she points out that women seldom organize into gun-toting armies Mm -hmm. and are the most likely to successfully negotiate the economic changes needed for a sustainable future. Ricky Gard-Diamond, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: Thank you, Bert. That was a lovely in, in, introduction. You you really gave a, a great summation of so much of what I'm talking about in Scronomics, although I have to say that part of the reason I wrote Scronomics is that women as a group have, because we're involved in so much essential work, yes we tend to um, uh, avoid the subject of economics if we can Mm -hmm. avoid it. Uh, Yes, there are a few women who are seeking Ph.D. in the field, although those numbers are actually shrinking, Mm -hmm. statistics tell us lately. But uh, by and large, when women get together, they're not talking about the economy. And so what Schoonomics is hoping to accomplish is to begin... Uh, what I'm calling econo-girlfriend conversations about uh, how the economy works against them and and real ways that we can make change, because Hmm. a lot of people are involved in making that change right now and unscrewing the economy.
0: Oh, that's true. No, That is true. It's a big—it's a huge job. Actually, the name of the show, Keeping Democracy Alive, uh, was coined before the election of Donald Trump. It's a bigger job now than it was when we picked the name, I'll tell you.
1: Well, you know, in some ways I think it might be a little easier now because the uh, powers that be have always had um, an inside route to the president's office. (laughs) Um, I'm thinking of Nomi Prynne's great book, All the President's Men. There's always been a relationship between... Uh, banking and money and uh, power in Washington. Uh, but sure. uh, typically, that relationship was, um, was convened outside the public realm. But now, uh, the entity that I am calling Economan has kind of taken his mask off, and, and there <laughs> he is out in plain view. It's not a pretty picture, so maybe yeah. it's easier to begin talking about it now.
0: Oh, that's true. It is more more obvious. It's more clear. It's more like hitting us over the head with a two by four. Uh, just yes. <laughs> in nineteen just who who you are to tell let listeners know. In nineteen eighty five, she became founding editor of Vermont Woman, where she canu- continues today as contributing editor. She taught writing and literature, feminist and media studies at Vermont College of Norwich University for over twenty years. In twenty eleven, she was honored with a National Newspaper Association Award for her article series. An Economy of Our Own, and in 2014 won a Hedgebrook Fellowship for her work on screwnomics. All right, let's look at the title. This is a new word. Uh, You made it up to describe what is an old phenomenon. What is screwnomics, and how far back in human history does the idea reach?
1: Well, you you mentioned Herodotus uh, 2,500 years ago, first naming oikonomia, which means... um, uh household management. So in a way if you're struggling with your budget right now, you're in some ways already an economist. Um uh, it, you know, it is kind of an unusual book because first of all it's it's aimed at women and it is full of women's stories and both entities, women and stories are usually not a part of economic texts and mm-hmm. Um, So, scronomics. I'll give you an example of what I mean um, that required my naming Schoonomics, because um, Thomas Piketty is an example of a great economist, a great thinker. He's he's talking about income, uh, growing inequality in the United States and the world in his book, Capital in the 21st Century. But uh, when I picked up that 700-page tome and I looked in the index, I found exactly seven references to women or females in that particular book. And, you know, I I happen to know that women are struggling with with inequality a bit. So um, I had to name what was invisible and untalked about and all around me, and that is Mm. the seeming uh, unspoken but widely applied economic theory that women should always work for less or better for free. And uh, that includes our Mother Earth, uh, and that includes Hmm. those uh, girly men, a a term that I use to mean as a compliment who do what has been traditionally women's work, uh, taking care of children or cooking or, um, uh, you know, doing nursing or teaching, why are they, and all of us, underpaid, and why are those tasks undervalued? So that really was the quest that started me on screwnomics, along with that word, screw, which, you know, we all know what that means. Mm -hmm. Most people laugh when I say my book is called screwonomics because they recognize it. You know, they say, oh, yeah, I know what that's about. But um, that is not a a woman's word. That is a masculine vernacular that has grown out of this uh, all-male world and this all-male expectation that billionaires should be guys and they should rule.
0: And I think it's a fascinating point you just mentioned about Mother Earth working for free. And, and Mother Earth is kind of part of the economy, you know, but it gets yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, when, when that essential uh, reproductive work, that life maintenance work that we expect Mother Nature to do, and we expect women to do as well, um, and now increasingly some men are doing it as well, yeah. when that's ignored the whole foundation of the economy uh, is eroded and damaged in ways that are not sustainable.
0: And this book has a very unique look to it. I mean, not only is the name Screwnomics kind of different, it's a bright yellow book. There are cutouts of, uh, well, like... Paper doll cutouts uh, of a dollar bill on the cover. Uh, tell us about that unique uh, look. What's unique about it? Uh, lots of uh, uh, illustrations in it, cartoons. Uh, who is the target audience for this book?
1: Well, you know, I I aimed it at those women who are not talking about economics, um, uh, girl to girl, yeah. girlfriend to girlfriend, and um, I I'm surprised, but I'm finding that um, most uh, radio shows that are uh, about economics are hosted by men, and I've been talking to a great many of them and um, finding that they're also very interested in this book, and they recognize what I'm talking about, I suppose, because, you know, screw is a, a male vernacular. They understand better, perhaps, uh, how things are arranged and how, you know, the metaphors that are used to control uh, how, how you behave. Right. Right. So, yeah. um, I I uh, I think I lost track of your question. Well, it Was just, it?
0: it's it's a very different uh, book, uh, inside and out.
1: Oh yes, the way it w- it works. Yeah. I, I should tell you a story about she writes press who who have published a book uh, gave me a cover design originally that had a woman's fist holding a, a fistful of dollars hmm. and a kind of defiant. Um, uh-huh you know, stance, sure. you know, just that hand and that fist of money, and it was female, and by God. And I said, no, no, that is not what schoonomics is about. Schoonomics is about unscrewing the economy, and another kind of,
2: hmm.
1: uh, right now, the economy is waged as war, but waging life for uh, women and for all human beings, when you really look at cl- uh, closely at human history It's full of stories of collaboration and cooperation. I mean, we were uh, the first um, species that, uh, of of, uh, first primate species that had the bright idea of when you know there was a heavy bucket of water to move to another location. We figured out that hey. Maybe one uh, one of us can't do it, but if both of us put a hand on the bucket handle, we can carry this. And so um, that kind of cooperation and collaboration has always been a part of our very uh, adaptable uh, human behavior. So we're called upon right now with what's happening with the climate and what's happening with growing uh, inequality and the kind of... Um, violent uh, desperation that comes out of that, mm-hmm. uh, we're, it behooves us to uh, figure out some cooperative ways to move forward and very quickly.
0: And I've wondered for for quite a while, it seems like the, our economy is based on an acceptance of the notion of scarcity, that there's not enough to go around. I have to fight you for my share. Uh, yes. is, is that yes. do we still need to see it that way?
1: Well, those people at the top of the economic pyramid do view it that way and I think they benefit from uh, persisting in that. Right now, our, our money, very few people understand this, but our currency is exclusively um, issued as a private debt. It's part of the Federal Reserve system, and our dollar bills, which are literally bills, are created only when uh, money is borrowed. And right now, we're all living on uh, borrowed money. We need money to borrow money to buy cars, to buy automobiles, to finance our education. And that's not a bad thing as long as it is kept in, um, in, in, in balance with reality. And Mm -hmm. right now it's kind of unhinged from reality because it is so out of touch with Earth's capabilities and human lifetimes uh, Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. In in 2008, uh, before the crash happened, you know, Mm. the Forbes magazine always puts out the the Forbes uh, richest list its kind of a beauty contest (laughs) where you can see all those male billionaires you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, at the top of that list was Bill Gates, and at the time he had $46 billion. Well, 2008 happened. Uh, So much value was erased. Um, People lost the equity in their homes. Uh, my mother, whom I talk about in, in the book, mm-hmm. uh, lost $30,000 in value uh, overnight. It just vanished. And um, and yet, today, um, we're not quite on the decade, I don't think, are we? No. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess just we are, out, because yeah. it happened in September, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're now seeing record numbers of millionaires and billionaires, and Bill Gates money is now his assets and his wealth are now valued at uh 86 billion dollars so his value has doubled and the rest of us have only this year caught up to the median pay that was true in 2008 and even that was stagnant in in the bigger picture um while prices keep on rising you know so we we just um this is the phenomenon that, that uh, Piketty is talking about mm-hmm. in his book, which is a, a numerical phenomenon. Uh, growth of numbers will happen, and they will happen eventually, exponentially. And it's that that quick growth that is almost unbelievable, that um, is is out of touch with the concrete reality of our mm-hmm. uh, human lives and in our lifetimes and our our Earth's capacities.
0: So clearly and
1: possibly repay all of that debt.
0: Yeah, so clearly out of touch with with everyday reality. It's it's really mm-hmm. it's it, it's I can't even fathom. I mean to me, a billion dollars. A thousand million? What? How can one person have a thousand million dollars? But they have, as you say, multi billions. Uh, and and yeah. you, put, you brought about the subject of the Federal Reserve. I, I, this is interesting to me. You know, I, I, what a surprise. I tend to the left politically, but I was attracted to Ron Paul's idea of public ownership and control over the now independent Federal Reserve, which is, a uh, you know, it works for the banks. It works for the big banks. What interest do they currently serve? Would it be a good idea of the people... If the people of America own the Fed, and might that fit in with what you're talking about, how to deal with screwnomics?
1: Definitely, I, I have talked about it, but I, I also have hailed back to um, a senator whose name I'm not going to be able to remember now, but he he served um, uh, for you know, like 50 years uh, overseeing on the banking committee at, in Congress um, and questioned. The Federal Reserve's ability to create money out of private debt uh, when the government has the capacity to create its own currency, and at times it has. For instance, Lincoln, when um, he uh, realized that the Civil War would not be affordable Mm -hmm. uh, with private money, he, because of the interest, the, the payback that is involved, that, that is, interest payback is what demands this constant growth in the economy. Mm-hmm. We have to not only pay the, what we borrowed, but we have to pay the interest, which in some cases, as in housing, actually doubles our housing costs. So Lincoln said, well, we can't afford this war, and I'm going to issue these greenbacks. And so um, he did that. Um, eventually the private bankers gained control again. And there was only one state uh, that resisted that move and refused to join the Federal Reserve, and that was uh, North Dakota, which, you know, is a, a red state. It's very Republican and yes. has been for a long time. There was a bipartisan league that uh, organized and established the Bank of North Dakota. Yes. And they capitalized it with uh, at least some of their uh, tax revenues mm-hmm. and use that to capitalize the bank and capitalize their own loans locally to North Dakotan mm-hmm. uh, farmers and small businesses, and also entered into partnership with local banks I mean North Dakota actually has more local banks than than any other state in the Union, and they are the only ones who uh, came out of two thousand and eight in the black mm. and um, yes. uh, looking looking good um, they're well managed they're conservative and I dare say their uh, banking professionals are not paid at the same rate as as those uh, bankers <laughs> on on Wall Street and they're not run by bonuses they're they're reporting to um, the North Dakotans legislation yeah. and actually returning some tax dollars uh, some dollars some profits from their loans to the tax revenues, so that uh, in the last ten years they've contributed millions of dollars and reduced taxes in North Dakota. So it's a really well kept secret yeah. until recently. Um, there are more and more um, states that are and candidates for governor and state legislatures that are looking at this phenomenon. It it would be in my mind um, a, a good counterbalance to the uh, speculation that so often happens on, on Wall Street and the global economy, it would also um,
2: encourage
1: uh, you know states to set their own sure. priorities and bank in the public interest as well as the private impulse to get richer and richer.
0: What a concept, banking for the public interest. Whoa, how radical. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Ricky Gard-Diamond. Her new book is Screwnomics, big yellow book, How Our Economy Works Against Women and Real Ways to Make Lasting Change. And the story goes that when asked to name the greatest invention in human history, Albert Einstein, according to the story, replied, Compound interest. You argue that without interest accumulated from everyone's loans, consumer prices might be 40% less with housing half its current cost. Interest is at the heart of our economic system, is it not? I mean, can the system of interest be adjusted within the capitalist system?
1: Yes. Uh, it's it, it's the backbone of our system now, and uh, it, it wasn't that long ago that um, you know in medieval times usury it was called yes. uh, was was forbidden it oh, was yeah. illegal yeah. and um, I, I think there is is some usefulness for interest no, I sure. mean uh, a be. lot of us depend on it for our um, for our pensions and for our, our return on on our investments. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's unreasonable, frankly, but I, I do think it's a matter of um, those those numbers. I mean, th- depending on the limits you put on it, I mean, we could limit the the amount of interest um, that is permitted on on Wall Street and right. with stockholders. We we have a limit on losses, but we don't have a limit on gains, and perhaps we mm-hmm. could have that. It could be a a time limit. It could be an amount limit. There are lots of ways to think about it that would bring it more in line with um, with with what is real. You know, uh, back w- during the first uh, 1930s crash, when FDR came to power, he and uh, Congress uh, put many kinds of uh, institutions in place that had never been there before, and I'm talking about the Securities and Exchange Commission. I'm talking about Social Security Insurance. Um, I'm talking about um, uh, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, that made sure you know banks couldn't just shut their door and and you'd lose all your money. Um, all of these programs were putting limits. On uh, Glass Steagall is another uh, much talked about yeah, uh, provision that FDR put in place, and all of these were limits on how much, how 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 much interest is enough, how much right. wealth is enough. Right. Um, the graduated income tax was another,
2: sure.
1: um, you know, very established uh, tax that um, our founding fathers. Uh, we're very interested in. The inheritance tax mm-hmm. uh, was was also another tradition that, that just put limits on how uh, astronomical those debts and that um, growth could be. So all of those are possible, but they don't even seem to be uh, talked about now, and they could be, oh, yes. And unless they um, are talked about and unless some of those limits are placed on capitalism uh, it's going to, it's going to collapse again uh, people are already predicting because of the undoing of so much that was put in place with um, with the um, uh, dodd-frank bill yes. for instance mm-hmm. uh, there'll be another crash uh, some people are predicting that this time it won't be the mortgage securities it will be the student debt uh, crisis oh. the student debt slabs, as uh, traders call them on Wall Street.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, people used to say uh, FDR saved capitalism from itself. And it seems like today, okay. you know, under this new administration, j- they just want to undo any and all regulations, including, you know, for example, food safety. You know, just anything yes. goes. And
2: yes, capital- drug safety, ca-
1: yes, <laughs>
0: Capitalism can work. It can work if it's, I think, serving the common good, which FDR wanted it to do. It had to serve the common good. Now, uh, Ricky, you you share uh, some of your personal economic story, starting with an experience in your state welfare office back in 1979. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I did say that the book is full of stories, my story, my, my mother and grandmother who were working uh, before it was um, a, a career objective for women, and also many women who uh, most people haven't heard of, but who have had really important ideas about the economy. I uh, ended up in the welfare office um, working full-time, uh, going to school. I had three kids. I had a uh, Child support of $25 a week, and I thought that I should be able to manage my budget, and I couldn't. I just, no matter how hard I tried, and no matter how many times I, I added it up on my, you know, my, my, with my pencil and on my legal pad, um, I just couldn't make it work. And I finally, with great shame, went to the welfare office and um, encountered... Here, here I am, I'm, I'm dressed in my business suit, I've got earrings on, and I'm very well treated by the all-white social workers in the Michigan uh, welfare office. Most of the other mothers that were there were in T-shirts, they mm-hmm. uh, had darker skin, their their eyes looked even fatter than my own, mm-hmm. and uh, they were just left waiting. I learned much later that um, at the time, women were making 59 cents to a man's dollar in the working world. Mm -hmm. And so that explained you know, a larger systemic reason why some people are poor more often than others. Uh, and even though I was the minority in that mm-hmm. particular Michigan Welfare Office, I later learned that I am not in the minority. I was not in the mm-hmm. minority. Uh, as a white woman, um, most of the poor are white, and most of the poor are women. Uh, most of the poor are um Women with children, single women with children, and um, women of color, uh, African Americans or Latino women, are about twice as likely to be poor as a white woman like me, but... Um, there are many more of us, and of course there are many more uh, working families, sometimes with a husband and a wife both working, right. and still uh, they can't make oh, yeah. enough money to, to uh, maintain a, a household with kids. And so um, it's, it's a complex picture, it's growing, and we're not talking about it. We need to.
0: Yes, we do, clearly, because it, it, it is a big part of our economy that people would prefer not to look at. You know, the, the white men yeah. on Wall Street don't want to look at that. It, it's just it's yeah. not, not their business, I guess. And you mentioned how, you know, a long time not that long ago, women's wages relative to a man's was 59 cents to the dollar. Now it's up to 80 cents over the past two generations. It's an improvement. But why is this? That progress, not as encouraging as it might look at first.
1: Yeah, it looks, at, it looks great at first until you realize that it's a, a measurement of uh, a relationship between two numbers. And while women have been um, making gains, they also have largely done that by um, investing in their college um, uh, education, as I did, and um that required borrowing money and then of course you get a job and you can pay it back more slowly because you're making less money but also um men's wages overall that man's dollar has been it's been stagnant since the 70s and mm-hmm. um working class men in particular have have actually been losing ground yes. and then of course when you look at those numbers and you disaggregate them by race and gender uh you get a much um different picture it's not as as rosy as it might seem at first mm-hmm. glance mm-hmm.
0: now our, our of course in the beginnings of of this experiment called America the system initially served only white property owning men people who yes. had an economic stake in the system Yes. and some people want a return to that. Uh, While we've progressed beyond the old prohibition against married women owning property, for example, women in many states still don't control their own bodies. And in this Trump era, there's a very vocal white straight male backlash against equal rights for all. Very loud demand on that. Certainly, reproductive rights remain under assault. So in what sense is bodily control the first step to economic independence?
1: Well, it... (coughs) I I was surprised to learn that um, the first property, uh, and this was um, put forward originally by Gerda Lerner, who is the mother of uh, women's history, which didn't come into existence until the 1970s, as you remember. It was kind of an oxymoron, women's history, that, you know, (laughs) history's about kings and and uh, Great men. generals, yeah. uh, women, but uh, she posited that the first property was women's uh, reproductive powers because huh. forty thousand years ago, when the first ice age ended, uh, land was not rare; there was plenty of land, sure. but people were rare, and you needed a certain number of people to um, survive in your your tribes, mm-hmm. and, and then originally, you know, mm-hmm. they became clans and they got bigger sure. and bigger. But um, the, if, if uh, Macedon stepped on some of your key um, personnel, you'd have to um, look to uh, the next tribe to either trade or capture um, a woman that you could bring back, and she would have this reproductive capacity that was really, really important. And that is why we see um at the foundation stone of, of all of our ancient civilizations and I put that word in, in quotations, mm-hmm. the ownership of women and slaves were um, at, at you know very basic yeah. to, um, uh-huh. to how to how sure. were created, particularly when agriculture started about ten thousand years ago. So um, that was labor-intensive, we needed more people, and um, so ownership of women and of slaves was essential. Ah. And it hasn't been that long since, um, and in fact, maybe we haven't really given that up yet.
0: Interesting. That's such a, mm-hmm. you know, now that you mention it, it's like fairly obvious, but I had never thought of that, I will confess. Now, <laughs> befitting your book's title,
1: it was a surprise to me too. I, I hadn't thought about it, but you know, we see the the shadows of of that um, ownership in the wedding ceremony. That at a moment that always makes me tear up, and and that's when the bride is given to the groom, right. Usually by her father. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it's an affectionate gesture now, but it um, it also um, recognizes what has been. Uh, reality for us for a long time.
0: Well, that was your, I suppose, economic worth. <laughs> so, yes,
2: it
1: so was. Bizarre. It was. Well,
0: you in you know, the book titled Screwnomics, you describe cor- corporate America in sexualized terms, complete with verbal mounting, pseudo-sexing, and likening workers to concubines. Talk about that yeah. if you would, please.
1: Well, the words uh, pseudosexing and verbal mounting were from a wonderful book by Robert McElveen called Eve Seed. And he was the one who taught me what that word screw really means. It is not lovemaking. It is the opposite. And it is a vehicle for um, an all-man uh, society, which money-making realms were until fairly recently all-male It was a way for um, men to express to other men their lesser status as if, you know, being female were a bad thing. And it certainly Mm. is if you're being screwed. Um, Mm. So uh, that was just so instructive to me. I I really hadn't stopped to think about that either. When I began to think about concubines, um, I, I thought of that old story in the Bible about Uh, Sarah and Abraham. Sarah was unable to bear a child, and so she gave her servant, Hagar, to her husband, Abraham. And when Hagar got pregnant and um, and delivered her child, she delivered it on the lap of Sarah. So it was very, um, uh, you know, symbolic. And when I stopped to think about it, I realized that you know, because I, as an employee and, and as a uh, a student, had been sold in a couple of occasions and had no say in what happened to me, the bargain that had been made was made at the boardroom level, at the top of that economic pyramid, and someone had decided that I now had a new owner. A lot of people were experiencing this in the, you know, the 90s and even today with all the mergers that keep happening so jobs are eliminated or you have to move to a new location and you have no say about that. Right. And so um, this happens so uh, routinely that, that, we don't, that we don't question it. And, of course, if you are an employee and you, um, you deliver a new method or a new, um, uh, a new procedure that really uh, yields profits and is more efficient, uh, that is born on the lap of the corporation that owns you, and um, maybe you'll be rewarded for that, or maybe you won't. Mm. It's really up to the corporation to decide. It's up to the, the the head of the corporation to decide, and the head of the corporation is capital, which itself means head, kaput. So um, oh, wow. it's all very interesting to think about in those concrete sort of ways that, I think are essentially sexual at a at a realm at a at a level that um, is um, kind of half conscious. We don't even really realize it, except that money continues to be a pretty taboo subject. It's (laughs) something that we still don't talk about that openly.
0: Uh, Interesting. I remember reading uh, some books by Norman O'Brown, which talked about how, you know, we're not supposed to talk about gold and money and things like that. It's sort of taboo. And yet it affects everybody. Well, a constant throughout the book, Screwnomics, is a character you call Economan, an ultra masculine, ultra rational mindset that defines our economic times. Who is Economan? Tell us about him.
1: Well, he's he's not any particular um, man. I I pick on Bill Gates, but I'm really not no. naming him as economan. Rather, I'm I'm naming economan as a social construction that we've all contributed to or all um, encountered. Let's say, um, and it is a kind of expectation that um, that a, a particular man of a particular race, a particular class, a particular Mindset of um, you know expectation probably a particular elite education is going to be um, in charge of money and making the rules and he's going to be um, he's going to be handling things uh, and he and he needn't confide in you it's it's not a democratic setup so um, I, I think that again this is not really fully conscious. But we've allowed it to happen, and uh, it's it's now becoming so apparent and so apparently harmful, not only to um, to us, to to the earth, but also to man himself. Um, it just is not sustainable, and um, so there are lots of people who are questioning that. Uh, you know, of course, the women are among them. But I think it would be really really sad if women entered that economic realm assuming that the game uh, continues to be endless competition uh, and uh, warfare instead of the collaborative um, cooperation that makes uh, life uh, sustainable. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you another story about, uh, I hope we have time for it. Oh, my um, goodness, yes. What I learned from... Uh, um, a, trip, a field trip with a biologist to look at the uh, horseshoe crab population on Cape Cod. Okay. And uh, we went out on a particular uh, night when there was a particular full moon expected, and it was known that when that moon came out, the horseshoe crabs, which have been around for like 40 billion years or something, uh, they come up and on the beach and they lay their eggs. Well, not only did humans know this, but birds had known it forever, and they had actually timed their migrations to coincide with this egg-laying event. So all of these birds landed on the beach, and they're just going after these eggs. There are millions of them, uh, little tiny eggs in the sand, just going at them. And it was sort of like watching uh, um, sewing machines at work. But what the biologists pointed out to us was that this all was very collaborative because birds had evolved with different lengths of bills. There were godwits, there were dunlins, there were um, plovers, and they all had different lengths of bills so that they were kind of sharing uh, particular eggs at a particular depth. And that sewing machine motion was actually driving some of the eggs deeper into the sand where they could help the horseshoe crab prosper as well. So this is an, a great example of the kind of balance and the kind of um, collaboration that species have evolved in particular environments uh, that, that we, we can use as a model for the way we need to operate our economy.
2: There
0: are models other than the one we have been using. And uh, it's long fascinated me how Darwin's notion of survival of the fittest has been plugged in where perhaps it doesn't really belong. It's been used, perhaps abused, by America's wealthiest men. Does this fit with what you see as Darwin's actual understanding and intention?
1: Yes. Well, the way uh, Economan uses that, I mean, in, in the, the ideas came out in the during the Gilded Age, which is yes. the last time we saw this level of income inequality or, or uh, wealth inequality. Um, and their idea was that you know we're on top of because we're simply the best. We're right. the smartest. We're the um, the strongest. We're the you know most capable. And they sort of Equated themselves to um, the the red two and claw of nature and pictured themselves as king of the jungle or right. the, the the species at the top of the food chain. But that is not what Darwin was talking about. Darwin was talking about the fittest species surviving, and the fittest were both genders, not just the the you know the male lion with the big mane but both genders that figured out uh, a, an amazing variety of sexual practices and, and ways of uh, mating and joining their chromosomes and mixing them up and uh, producing a new generation that they were then devoted to seeing uh, thrive and survive in the future. And that included all kinds of adaptations uh, of the kind that I was just describing on the, on the beach in Cape Cod. So um, that is what uh, what Darwin was talking about and of course you never hear um, Economan talking about his babies or our babies. Uh, the, the outcome of you know what happens to our future generation does not seem to be very high on his list of considerations it's
0: such a limited view of of what the economy is that that you're painting the picture of and it's i can see it now it's it's really true it leaves out so much of the economy and this this is an interesting point that you raise uh it wasn't until industrialization that the word housework appeared in our language it's absolutely an essential part of our humming economy yes yet as a domain of work it continues to fall outside economic policy why is that, and what if it were included somehow? Your thoughts.
1: Well, uh, before that industrialization, uh, when Herodotus first coined the word oikonomia, uh, he, he was talking about household management because all the, the economy was agricultural; it was land based, and it was um, all, everything that was manufactured or made was created at home, so it it made a lot of sense. Uh, When industrialization happened, and uh, here in the United States, the first manufacturing that was removed from the home and put into factories was weaving uh, textiles. (laughs) Uh, that happened in uh, Lowell, you know, right, right. and uh, the um, young women were actually hired uh, if they were unmarried for a short time. They could work in the, in the mills, um, and so that was the first time that, that, um, that manufacturing was, was happening someplace else, and um, uh-huh. eventually that became the norm, and uh, the, the household... Became um, renamed not as a, a center of production but as a oh. uh, consumer of uh, products, and uh, women were suddenly, you know, demoted, and and the the, the sexual reproductive powers that she had that had um, created labor and a source of wealth mm-hmm. on the farming household uh, became an expense, and uh, oh. and so. Her her whole role was was transformed, and there was a very popular um, ideology in, that developed in the 19th century that um, created what um, what was called the angel of the house, where the household was this separate realm of uh, freedom from this dirty economic world, a dog eat dog world mm-hmm. where men were you know fighting and competing to make money. Uh, we, we wanted to uh, uh, supposedly protect women from that and mm-hmm. our children from that. And so um, we developed this idea of the angel of the house. It never really applied to the majority of houses, but um, but it was an ideal in the same way that the man is kind of an ideal. Um, and it, it, we, we really have not come to terms with that. Other countries have begun to see that there really are not – two disconnected realms but these are very closely interconnected what happens in the in the family and the smaller communities uh, that we all populate uh, what happens there affects the larger economy in ways that other countries have have recognized like our, our nearest neighbor is um, you know providing uh, family leave and uh, extended paid, Family leave for uh, you know family emergencies and um, that sort of thing, but we we still are not even looking at that here in the United States, and it's kind of considered um, unthinkable when we're you know so busy uh, waging war and yeah. and um, yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's it's
0: it's such an interesting point that you know that the the home is part of the economy; it's an essential. Integral part of the economy, and yet it's treated as something outside the economy. That's just nuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you brought up uh, the. It's
1: cheaper that way, you see. <laughs> well, but it's unrealistic,
0: obviously. You brought up the. Uh, yeah,
1: but it's impoverishing also to certain people. Oh <laughs>
0: well, yeah. Well, I suppose we. Some people feel like we need that. What? And, and you brought up uh, Lowell and Lawrence, Massachusetts. One of the most significant labor movements of the twentieth century was the great bread and roses strike uh, back in the, uh, what, 1912, I believe it was. I'm not sure. What is the relevance of that to what you're talking about? I, I sense it has quite well, a bit.
1: Well, Roche Schneiderman first uh, talked about um, the importance of bread, which you know we yeah. we purchase with our uh, wages, but also the importance of roses. And, and uh, what she meant by that was uh, our whole definition of, our, our lives and our work. Um, her, she held that our work should be um, enjoyable and that it should be just a part of our life, which also included family and um, spiritual connections and yes. artistic uh, uh, connections and the whole uh, realm of learning. I mean, I think... Oh, yeah. Uh, human beings, and I've seen this in, uh, as, a, uh, as a professor, that lifelong learning is a, is a real pleasure. It's probably part of what it's all about,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, so that would be another part of roses. But if uh, mm-hmm. people at that time were working 12-hour uh, days and seven days a week, when did they have the time to uh, enjoy the roses that were possible even when you had bread to eat, yes. so uh, I think we're we're back there again because now the expectation is that we would have two breadwinners right. in each household, and uh, with the now virtual world on top of the concrete world that we still have to manage, uh, we have you know these crazy hours. We're back to twenty four seven. So I think that's another realm where we really need to. Uh, engage in conversation about what matters and um, yes. whose whose um, whose property is it? The virtual world uh, has you know been in the news lately because they're selling us our our information, our data as uh, as a kind of um, commodity. we we're, we're com- become commodities there too. So mm. uh, it's all very complicated and intertwined. But I think. Uh, we're, we're at, a, at a place where we can really begin to think about yes. what our ancestors did, what they accomplished. You know, when uh, when they proposed a 40-hour work week and mm-hmm. they wanted a weekend, they were told, well, that's crazy, that'll yeah. undo the economy. We can't do that. Well, uh, in, in 1933, the Senate passed a 30-hour work week standard. I think we could... Uh, demand a 30-hour workweek standard for um, a livable wage, Mm -hmm. and the economy would actually prosper, not collapse. We'll be told it's going to collapse, but I don't think that's the truth. And we can look to what happened after our ancestors organized and began to uh, have conversations together about what needed to change. So I want to help make that happen.
0: Oh, I think it is. This is... It's so important to to look at the economy from a different angle. And and this very interesting and useful stuff here to see that. I mean, you're right. It wouldn't hurt the economy. It would stimulate demand. It would create more jobs if a shorter work week. And people might be, dare I say, happier, which is something that counts in the economy. It really does. It's not just... uh, you know, fluff outside the economy. It's its real. The book is Screwnomics, How Our Economy Works Against Women, and Real Ways to Make Lasting Change. Our guest here is uh, Ricky Gard-Diamond, and uh, we're talking about different ways of looking at the economy. A common way to measure economic performance, of course, is GNP, gross economic performance. It's a remarkably flawed measuring stick. What might be a better alternative Measure considered being considered.
1: Well, there are. Uh, first of all, most people don't really understand what the GDP is. They know that it's expected to grow all the time, and they're given right. this simple number. All the GDP does is add up all of the money, the the dollars that are exchanged. So, um, if you go out to eat at a restaurant, those dollars are registering in the um, gross domestic product. But if you cook a meal at home, um, the, the groceries that you buy and pay money for will count, but the labor that um, puts them that meal on the uh, table and, and cleans up afterward um, is, is nowhere visible. And uh, that's another reason why uh, certain people are uh, mostly of the per- female persuasion are shortchanged in um, in the GDP. I mean it goes without saying that because men uh, earn more, than, than women do. They earn more cash dollars than they're much more important to the economy, so um, it's it's just skewed. Yes. Um, the there are other measures that other countries again are are using, and there are even a couple of states who have adopted something called uh, the Genuine Progress Indicators. Because hmm. uh, one of the things that the Genuine Progress Indicators GPI does that's different from the GDP is that it also subtracts things that we're losing. In other words. It keeps track of the the natural resources in in the state that we need to pay attention to how how are we doing? Uh, Maryland is one of the states that 's adopted it, and every year they look at this data, for instance, they depend on on uh, fishing um, it 's important to their economy, so they pay attention to that. Another uh, thing that the GPI might keep track of is um, our time and how much time are we spending on uh, the highways commuting, for instance, um, th- those kinds of numbers also matter and should be part of our policy decision-making. Um, yes. But there are other, other indicators, too. There's uh, Leon Eisler um, at the Center for Partnership Studies, along with uh, an economist named uh, Nancy Fulbright, have come up with something called SWAY, which is social wealth, economic indicators. And the cool thing about the sway numbers is that, you know, intuitively we understand that when uh, families and communities are beginning to uh, fall apart because of economic pressures, that there's a kind of cumulative effect and it um, affects the economy in the long run. So social wealth economic indicators measures our social wealth and then links it to economic um, uh, health. So uh, it, mm. there are other. I mean, gross national happiness is another mm. uh, uh, movement to look more widely at the questions of our our health, our education, uh, our our feeling of being represented represented by our government, um, our um, our air and uh, water quality and all of these issues that are important to sustaining life can be measured and are being measured in, in many other countries. But the United States continues to resist that.
0: Yeah, d- destroying the economy is good for their GDP, <laughs> in
1: a way, the way it's measured <laughs> yes, now. But, I guess so.
0: Well, you know, biologists have concluded that life is harmed by too much competition. Are there... Modern industrial economies where cooperation is built in, such as you're talking about.
1: What comes to mind is the, uh, the self-employed women's association of India that uh, pictured itself as a, not as a collection of uh, boxes or a, a pyramid, a construction, uh, but pictured itself as a living banyan tree. And uh, uh, the organizational chart for their um, their association is is in Scronomics because I I just think it's so valuable to think about uh, to to adopt a more uh, living um, a more living uh-huh. uh, example sure. of of how we could interrelate. So when when they first organized, uh, they were told by the government that they were self employed and therefore they couldn't have a union because there was this mm-hmm. um, longstanding drama between male-operated unions and male-owned corporations that were in constant warfare. That's mm-hmm. how they operated. And so the government said, no, you're self-employed, you, you can't have a union. Well, they persisted, and, and they eventually became a union and organized and uh, formed uh, cooperative services that very many different kinds of self-employed women, I mean, they were doing a a million different things, but uh, they all needed child care and they all needed um, certain insurances. And so they joined together and they did that. And then they created their own uh, academy because they knew they Mm. needed to learn more about how businesses operated and how they could be efficient. So they started an academy. And then they eventually even started their own financial institution, their own banks. And these were women who were very poor, who had never had bank accounts. And so they devised a system that, um, you know, for peer lending, which eventually became quite well-known, but was really originated by these self-employed Indian women who pictured themselves as a living entity. So they're a wonderful example of what is possible. And what is already happening, we're seeing many more inclusive kinds of uh, corporations, more inclusive kinds of uh, financial institutions. It is possible. I think people are are groping toward that, knowing that that is a way we've survived in the past and we can do it again.
0: Thank you very much. There's a lot more to talk about. Fascinating book. Perhaps someday some uh, president will have... Ricky Gard Diamond is an economic advisor. That would be a good <laughs> thing. The book is called Screwnomics, How Our Economy Works Against Women and Real Ways to Make Lasting Chains. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank
1: you, Bird. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>